0: Amen. Well, good morning, church. No guilt in life, no fear in death. What wonderful truths that we get to sing about. Well, as Julie mentioned, we're starting a parenting class in just a couple weeks, uh, and so I would ac- encourage you to attend. It's called Parenting with Purpose. I was going to choose the name of my, uh, one of the, my favorite titles of a parenting book, which is called, Aren't They Beautiful When They're Sleeping?, Uh, But I chose to be a little more maybe uh, optimistic about the class, Parenting with Purpose. That'll start uh, March 22nd on Wednesday nights at 7 o'clock. And I would encourage you, if you are expecting, uh, if you're parenting young kids, parenting older kids, parenting teenagers, if you have grown children or even you're in the grandparenting or maybe even great grandparenting phase of parenting, I'd encourage you to come. Uh, I think it'll be helpful, it'll be a wonderful time of fellowship, uh, just to be reminded of how does God want us to think about our kids and grandkids? The Bible actually mentions grandparents in a few different places, and so they have a vital role in helping their grandchildren know the Lord, so I'd invite you to, to come on out to that. If you have your Bibles, please open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. If you're using a pew Bible, and I encourage you to, even if if you didn't bring one of your own, that's page 909. We're continuing our series, it's a matter of trust, and it's a stewardship series, uh, which is about, you know, everything that God has given us. By the way, do you have anything that you didn't receive from God? No. And so everything that he gives you, all aspects of your life, you want to be a good steward, You want to be faithful with the things that he's given you. Use them according to his purposes and his plans. Now, of course, one of those areas is giving and money. And you might come from a background where you think the church, they're just only out for your money. Let me assure you, we only preach on this topic like once every two or three weeks. So it's not something, you know, that we find to be that, you know, that important. We're not out for your money. Uh, No, but some people say, well, is is it hard to talk about money? And I'd say, no, it's not. Paul's gonna say that the Macedonians, they gave themselves first to the Lord. And if you've given yourself to the Lord, then there's no area that's off limits. Everything is fair game. He's given us everything. There's no area of our life that we'd want untouched by his grace. And so that's what we're gonna look at this morning in 2 Corinthians 8, verses one through nine. How should we think about our giving in light of the generosity of Christ? So this message is called Rags, Riches, and Radical Generosity. Let me pray. Father, you've given us all things. It says you give us life and breath and everything else. It's all yours. Everything that we have, you gave us. From our money to the breath, the air that we breathe, to the family that you've given us, to the job we have, the paycheck that comes in, the kids that you've entrusted to us, the church that you brought us into, it's all yours, and it's all a gift from you, and you call us to be good stewards of the things that you've given us, including our money. And money, it it can tend to have kind of a stranglehold on us, even as believers. We look around us, we definitely live in a country where one of the main idols is money. And are we immune to that? Are we immune to serving money instead of serving you? The temptation is strong. And so, Lord, I pray that your spirit would help us, help us to see what you say in this text, And by your spirit, that you'd sort of pry our fingers off of our wallet, our pocketbook, so that we might be generous like you're generous. And that we might be a wonderful portrait of your grace in how we use our money. Lord, as Randy prayed, I pray that you would do a work in us. We need it. Every area of our life needs it. Maybe this one more than some. And so do the work that only you can do. In my heart, too. I'm not immune to this. Do a wonderful work by your spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, so this passage really is all about the grace of God. Look at verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that happens in this Macedonian church. Look at verse 9, the other bookend to this passage. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it begins and ends with the grace of God. Why is he talking about the grace of God? So that we might be gracious like he's gracious and be generous like he's generous. Look at verse six. At the end of verse six, it says, you should complete among you this act of grace. The end of verse seven, see that you excel in this act of grace also. So what's Paul doing? He's calling us to look at the grace of God and then to excel in being gracious yourself. And so he's gonna give two portraits of grace that we see in this text. One is the Macedonians in verses one through five. And then one is the Lord Jesus Christ himself in verse nine. So let's look at this first portrait of grace. Rags to riches, the radical generosity even from poverty in verses one through five. It says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy And their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Rags to riches, radical generosity even from poverty. I mean, think about the recipe of radical generosity that's in verse one through four. I mean, what are the ingredients that produced radical generosity? Ingredient number one, extreme poverty. Now, the Macedonians, they were poor in general. Now, imagine you're amongst the poor, but you're a Christian in the midst of the poor during that time, right? If you're not a Christian, you'll beg, borrow, steal. You'll do whatever you can to get the money that you need. Now, if you're a Christian, you don't get to beg, borrow, steal like that. So you're even more impoverished than those around you. The phrase extreme poverty literally means they were at the depths of poverty, The bottom of the bottom, the lowest of the low. There was the poor, and then there was the poor of the poor. That was the Macedonians. Rhonda and I watched this show called Next Level Chef with Gordon Ramsay recently, Uh, and the premise of this show is you have these different kitchens. You have three kitchens that are literally stacked on top of each other. And the top one is like the high-end kitchen. The middle one is sort of like, you know, a good commercial kitchen. And the, bath, the one on the bottom is like, you know, a dorm kitchen, basically, something like that. And they lower food from the top to the bottom. So the chefs that are on the top level, they get their choice, right? They'll get the filet mignon. They'll get the scallops. They'll get, you know, whatever they want. And then that food will drop, literally, they have a big platform with food on it. And that will drop down to the second level. And they'll get some good stuff. There might be, you know, a duck breast or some different things for that second level. They're still cooking with good ingredients. By the time you get to that third level, your choice of proteins is like canned chicken uh, or spam. Now, don't get me wrong. I like a good piece of spam every now and then, but you're not making a restaurant-quality dish with spam. What Paul's saying is these people were like, if you could imagine a fourth level to that kitchen, where it's like they've got like, you know, parsley sprigs and you know, I mean the canned meat's gone at the by the point it's getting down to them. That's the first ingredient in their recipe, extreme poverty. What's the second ingredient? Severe affliction. So imagine you're the poor of the poor. Now you're in affliction. Comedian Jim Gaffigan was once asked, you know, what's it like to have five children? And he said, imagine you're drowning and someone hands you a baby, <laughs> right? That, I mean, it's just, you're already treading, you're barely treading water and then it's like something else comes. But now look at it, what kind of affliction? Now this is kind of like just a light, you know, affliction, not, big, not a big deal. What does it say in verse two? A severe test of affliction. So you're the poor of the poor. You're barely getting by. Now you're in a hard situation. And it's just not like a run-of-the-mill hard situation. It's a severely hard situation. So those are the two ingredients that they're working with so far. Extreme poverty, severe affliction. Now what's the third ingredient? In verse 2 it says they have abundant joy. Abundant joy where did that ingredient come from severe affliction extreme poverty and yet they have abundant joy how well what's this about it's about the grace of god the grace of god can give you abundant joy even when you're in extreme poverty and severe affliction And notice the grace of God does not always remove extreme poverty or severe affliction, but it can give you abundant joy, even in the midst of it. So they're the poor of the poor, but they think, I don't care. I have abundant joy. I'm in a severe affliction. It doesn't matter. I have abundant joy. And then they're stirring this up. Extreme poverty, severe affliction, abundant joy. We're stirring that in the pot, and what comes out? Verse 2. It overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. It's like, what? How do you put those three ingredients together and get overflowing rich? Generosity. I mean, these people are poor. They're the poor of the poor. They're afflicted, severely afflicted. And yet, Paul says they're overflowing with rich generosity. How generous are you on a good day? How generous are you on a bad day? How generous would you be if you're poor? If you're the poor of the poor, if you're the poor of the poor in an affliction, if you're the poor of the poor in a severe affliction, how generous would you be? These people were overflowing with rich generosity. I have an opportunity to give to someone in need? Praise the Lord! I gladly give. I freely give. Anything I can find, I'm going to give away. They overflowed. Now look at the flavor of their radical generosity in verses 3 and 4. The first thing we see, it's sacrificial. Verse 3, they gave according to their means. So they did not view their extreme poverty or severe affliction as As an excuse not to give anything They said even though we're in those situations We could give this And then what else did they give And it says I testify they gave beyond their means I mean they came to their You know to think we're poor We're severely afflicted We could give this But that's not enough Let's give more Let's give more than we could give they gave beyond their means. How many of us give according to our means? Now, let's not even talk about beyond our means. Let's just talk. How many of us give according to our means? Christianity Today published an article about some church giving statistics. What percentage of churchgoers do you think give regularly? Five percent. of people that go to church regularly give regularly. The average churchgoer gives 2.5% of their income. In the Great Depression, the average churchgoer gave 3.3% of their income. We give less now than believers did during the Great Depression. Households that make more than $75,000 are the least charitable. Of households that make $75,000 or more, what percentage of those households do you think give at least 10%? 1%. 1% of the richest people give. It's like the more we make, the less we give. And the Macedonians, who are in extreme poverty and severe affliction, overflow in a wealth of generosity. Yes. Well, someone must have manipulated them, right? I mean, they must have had the Sarah McLaughlin song playing and the three-legged dog hopping around, and they must have really kind of just tugged on their heartstrings to get them to give. No. No. They didn't just give sacrificially, they gave voluntarily. Look what it says at the end of verse 3. They gave beyond their means of their own accord. It was their idea. No one told them to do it. Paul was probably just sharing about these you know, saints in Jerusalem that they were in need. He probably had like zero expectation that the Macedonians are going to give. Right? He's just sharing it as a prayer request and they say No. We're going to give and we're going to overflow with generosity. So it's voluntary. Then next, it's enthusiastic. Look at verse 4. They were begging us earnestly to give. Paul, I don't think you know how fundraising works. They're not supposed to beg you, right? You're the fundraiser. You're supposed to beg them to give. And they say, "Uh uh-uh, we are begging you. Let us give. I mean, but Paul's like, no, you're poor. No, you're in a severe affliction. Just pray. And they're like, no. Do not deny us the right to give. We want to give. And how are they begging? Begging us earnestly. Don't you dare deny us the opportunity to Give to this need. No arm twisting. It's not like they were just like willing, like fine, all right, like here. No, they're begging earnestly for the opportunity. And that's the last thing. Look, they see it as a privilege. It says they're begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. That word favor is grace, again, that we've seen four times already in this passage. They viewed giving as a gift. And catch it, they didn't view what they gave as a gift. They viewed that they got to give as a gift. It would be a gift to us to be able to give to the saints that are in Jerusalem. So they're enthusiastic, they see it as a privilege. It's a gift to be able to give. Now, how did they get that mindset? Well there's a secret ingredient to radical generosity we see in verse 5. It says this, and this, not as we expected. Paul had no expectation that this was going to happen. But what was the reason they did it? They gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. This is what enabled them to be able to give so radically and so generously. They had already given themselves first to the Lord. They said, Lord, we don't deserve anything. We're the bottom of the bottom. We're the dregs of the earth. We don't deserve anything, and yet you were gracious to us. You sent your son to pay for our sins. We have an eternal inheritance with you. How could we not give you everything it's all yours anyway. There was an old preacher of a small country church, and he said one time that he was passing around the collection plate, and it came to this girl, this little girl, and this little girl took the plate, she put it on the ground, and then she stepped and stood on the plate. And then the preacher asked, like, oh, why, why are you doing that? And she said, well, my Sunday school teacher said that we're supposed to offer ourselves to the Lord that's what the macedonians did my whole life is yours i'm yours i don't have anything that you didn't give me it's all yours i give my whole life to you so can i give money it's like yeah i can give you the paper in my pocket Who cares? it's all yours to begin with i mean the macedonians must have thought my money i don't have money of my own i have god's money it's not mine He himself gives life and breath and everything else. Sometimes we ask the question, like, how much money should I give to God? How much of my money should I give to God? What's the question we should ask? How much of God's money should I keep for myself? That's the question. My life is his. That includes everything. The Macedonians gave joyfully their money because they'd already given their life to the Lord. God had first place in their lives. Now what had second place? That's where my needs come in. No, look what had second place. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So they gave themselves first to the Lord, then they gave themselves second to God's people. It's like you are the people that came and preached the gospel to us We are so thankful we gladly give you anything that you need May you continue to do what you did for us You came you didn't have to come but you came and you brought us the gospel and we are forever changed And so you go and you do that to as many people as possible They want to see their money used for the mission of god so they gave first to the Lord. Second, they gave to his mission. And they trusted, anything else, I can get by on. You know, I hope that money is not a touchy subject to you. Right? If he has our life, it's like, why, would we not talk, why can't we talk about money? He has everything. If giving is a burden to you and not a privilege... This text says you should consider, have you given yourself first to the Lord? Right, I mean, think about the priorities these Macedonians had. First, the Lord. Second, his people. Third, I'll get by. Right, it's the old Sunday school acronym, joy. Right, how do you have joy in your life? J, Jesus first. O, other second. Why, you last. That's Joy. That's the Macedonians. But our priorities are usually the opposite. I seek me first, my plans and my mission second, and if I have anything left over, and I kind of hope I don't, I'll give it to the Lord. Unless I can find something else to spend it on, and I kind of hope I do. That's our attitude of giving, and yet how we should be thinking is exactly the opposite. We think I overspent God, I have nothing left for you. We should think, let me overspend on God and see how I can get by on the rest. That should be our mindset. I mean, the Macedonians were thinking, I'm going to leverage every single thing in my life for the sake of his kingdom. And you have to ask yourself the question, where did they learn that? Where did they learn that I need to leverage everything for his sake to benefit others? And where did they learn that poverty could actually result in somebody else's riches? They learned that from the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the second portrait of grace. The Macedonians went from rags to riches, Jesus went from riches to rags and shows us the radical generosity that can stem from wealth. Look at verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. There's no way to do this verse justice. I mean, where do you begin? How rich was our Lord Jesus Christ? He didn't come into existence in the manger. He existed for all eternity. He's always existed and will always exist. How do you describe the riches of one like that? And when he existed in all eternity past, he was the object of the Father's love for all eternity. How do you describe his riches? He's never needed anything. He's all sufficient. He had an eternal eternal life of joy and fellowship with his Father and with the Spirit. And then his Father wanted that love to be enjoyed. And so he asked the son, create everything. And the son does. How do you describe the riches of the one who can create everything out of nothing with a word? From the most intricate flower to the most majestic mountain, he can speak. And there it is. How rich is our Lord Jesus Christ. Picture the beauty of standing on a Hawaiian beach at sunset. I mean, feel the sand between your toes. Hear the sound of the waves washing up on the shore. Smell that salt water as the breeze comes in. And look out on that sunset of a painted sky How rich is the one who can create that with a word? And that's one little beach on one little planet, in one little solar system, in one little galaxy of infinite galaxies that he's created where there's beauties that we've never even seen. And he created it all in a word. How do you describe the riches of a person like that he holds it all together he's responsible for every breath that you take he created the host of heaven all of the angels are told to worship him he sits on a throne worthy of honor and praise and glory forever and ever how rich is our Lord Jesus Christ I mean, just imagine for a moment the world before the fall. I mean, all the beauty of creation. Every bird singing his praise. Every river flowing and babbling the glory of his name. Every sun and star twinkling his fame. His power and beauty stamped on every single thing In all of creation. I mean, bask in that moment and consider how rich is our Lord Jesus Christ. And then ask yourself, what did he do with his riches? The apple of the Father's eye the one worshipped by the angels, the one who created all things and sustains all things, what did he do with his riches? It says he became poor. He became a man. The eternal God, worthy of glory and honor, becomes human. His beauty and majesty veiled in flesh. The glory that he is due him is set aside. The honor and praise that he deserves, he doesn't demand. And he's born in a cattle trough in the middle of nowhere. Then the one who made all things lives a life of obscurity for 30 years, he works with his hands. The very one that created all things picks up hammer and nails to be a carpenter's son for 30 years. He hung the stars and he's making ladders and furniture. And then consider his life and ministry. The one who created foxes and dens and birds and nests has nowhere to lay his head. The one who receives the praise of angels receives mocking and scorn from sinful men. He did nothing but good to all those that he made and they hunted him down to murder him. He walked on water, fed and healed thousands, raised the dead, and was abandoned and betrayed by his closest friends. He became poor. And then he went to the cross. He made the hands that held the whips that scourged him. He made the mouths that spit on him and hurled insults at him. He made the thorns that were pressed into his head as a crown. He made the men that bowed down and gave him mock worship as the king of the Jews. He made the tree that he hung on. He made the grapes that he tasted as sour wine. The one who gave life and breath and everything else breathed out his last breath naked and tortured on a cross. And why? Why did he do it? He did it for you. I mean, that's what it says. He who was rich, for your sake, he became poor. You who just could have as easily been one of the people in the crowd mocking him, he did it for you. You who spent years of your life running away from him, he did it for you. You who sit at church week after week and get bored in sermons because you don't care about him, he did it for you. He did it so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. His riches, he set aside so that he could become poor, so that you could become rich. Think about the riches that you now have in Christ. Your sins are forgiven. He went to the cross so that you wouldn't have to. He lived a perfect life of obedience that you could never have lived. He subjected himself to be bound and captive so that you could be free. He put up with false accusations so that no charge against you will ever stick. How rich are you in Christ through his poverty? He came to be a sympathetic high priest. He came and and lived a life of trials and temptations. Why did he do that? So that you would know that you always have someone that you can go to who knows exactly what it's like to be in the situation that you're in. He is your merciful and faithful high priest. Not only does he understand, he can actually help you. How rich are you in Christ? Through his poverty, you've been adopted into his family. It was the only way to bring you back. You, your sin, it just couldn't, kept, it couldn't be swept under the rug. It had to be paid for. He drank the cup of, of the wrath of God for you so that you can drink a cup of love. Think of the cup that he drank. Every ounce of the wrath of God so that you would never have to taste one drop. He became poor so that you could become rich. How rich do you have it in Christ? And we haven't even talked about our eternal inheritance. How valuable is that? It's beyond gold and silver. It's going to last forever. We're going to wake up every day in eternity, and it's going to be better than the day before. And no one can take it from you, and it will never be tarnished. And he bought it for you. He kept going down so that you could keep going up. Think about eternity. Think about the, the most painful trial you've ever been through in this life. The longest trial, most painful trial. If you haven't been through one, I mean, just imagine as bad as it can get. And now consider that that trial is gonna be a grain of sand on the shores of an eternity with your Savior. How rich are you in Christ? Christ. How can you have him as your savior and not give generously to anyone who needs it? How can you say you know him and then hoard things for yourself? That's why Paul's saying this. Yes, be amazed at him, but be amazed at him so that you would live like him, that you would use your riches, whatever riches God gave you, in the same way That I'm going to pour it out so that through my poverty, someone else might become rich. Now, how did the Corinthians respond to this truth? They're really the third portrait of grace, and their portrait is kind of TBD to be determined. Paul's writing this letter to motivate them to give. I mean, look at the grace of God amongst the Macedonians. Look at the grace of God of your Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says at the end of verse six, complete among you this act of grace. Verse seven, excel in this act of grace. He says in verse seven, you excel in everything in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in earnestness, in our love for you. Right, You believe the right things. You say the right things. You know the right things. You're passionate about the Lord. People like you. Don't let your giving lag behind all those other areas. A missionary friend of mine was watching First Service, and he texted me, and he said, you know, we have a saying in Spain. He says, the last thing to get saved is our wallet. <laughs> and that's exactly what Paul's saying. You're excelling in all these other things. How about in your giving? I fear that many of us can say the right things, believe the right things, but have no interest in advancing the kingdom of God through our giving. We get fed up with the things they're teaching our kids in school. We can't believe these politicians and where they're leading our country. I can't stand those false teachers on TV. How's your giving? Does your giving match your zeal for everything else in your Christian life. Because it should. Paul says our giving is an opportunity to prove our love. Look at verse 8. I say this not as a command. I'm not saying this is a command. I'm not telling any of you what to do. I don't, if you don't want to give, I don't want you to give. Paul's saying this is not a command. But prove the earnestness to others, that your love is genuine. Our love is only as genuine as what we're willing to give up. You know, we're in the middle of Lent right now. People give up things for Lent. I could say, I'm going to give up smoking for Lent. It's like, do you smoke? No. <laughs> like, so it doesn't mean anything, right? I'm going to give up ice cream. Do you eat ice cream? No, I'm lactose intolerant. Like, the, what, you're not giving up anything. Right? The real proof of our love for Christ is that we have nothing that stands in competition with him. We'll give up anything for him. Especially those things that we might feel most reluctant to give up. Paul is asking, how much do you love your Lord Jesus Christ? Then put your money Where your mouth is. If giving is a demonstration of your love for Christ, would you like that number written down somewhere for everyone to see? I love you, Lord, (laughs) 2.5%. I love you with 10%. How much does He love you? How much of his riches did he use for you? That's your measure. You know, I mean, we'll say, like, oh, the Old Testament, they gave 10%. It was a rule. And we're not under the law anymore. You're right. We're not under the law anymore. We're under 2 Corinthians 8 9. That's our measure. He who was rich became poor for our sake so that we through his poverty might become rich. Your life should reflect that. We don't have a rule, but we have a standard. And our life should match that standard. Our giving should match that standard. Paul says that our giving should reflect our love for our Savior in that Christianity Today article, 37% of Christians give zero. Evangelical Christians. People that say, I have no hope. I was lost in my sin. I was facing eternity in hell. And there was nothing I could do about it. And God sent his son to pay for my sins and give me an eternal inheritance and I give zero. How can anyone look at the cross and give zero? You know, Randy Alcorn, he says, you know, sometimes we talk about standard of living. We should really be talking about standard of giving. Like that all the wealth that comes our way, we're not thinking like how well can I live on this? We're thinking how well can I give this to God's kingdom? I mean, let's just talk numbers for a minute. Let's say that your family, your household makes $100,000. And let's say you pray and you decide, I think we can give 10%. If God helps us, we can give 10%. So you give $10,000, you live on $90,000. $90,000. Now let's say God blesses you, and your income goes to $200,000. What do you do? We give 10%, so now we give 20,000. But you were living on 90,000. So why wouldn't you think, I can now give 110,000? Because I can live on 90, and I can leverage every other ounce of money that comes my way for his kingdom. Because his plans are better than my plans that's how we should think that was the Macedonians that was our Lord Jesus Christ how can I use my riches for the benefit of someone else now you might ask the question how did the Corinthians respond and they did respond they gave in Romans 15 Paul says that he's bringing the collection that he received from the churches in Macedonia and from the Corinthian believers they responded they responded to this. And the question for us is, will you? Will you respond to what God has done for you in the Lord Jesus Christ? He's the measure of our life for everything else, right? We're told to love one another how? As Christ loved you. We're told to forgive each other how? As God in Christ forgave you how are we to give we're to give like the way the Lord Jesus gave to us I mean what better way to use your money than to give it to him let him do what he wants with it now if you'll permit me I'm going to get a little practical here even if you don't permit me I'm going to get practical here so let me just bring this down what does that mean for us Valley Bible Church if you love what God is doing at Valley Bible Church and would like to see us to be able to do even more, then give and give more. Last year, our budget was 2.4 million. Now, that is a big number. But if you really think about it, I mean, that was pretty, it's a pretty bare bones budget for all the things that God has entrusted to us. And last year, we actually fell short. We didn't make budget. We were $100,000 short So this year when we made our budget for this next year We had to take that into account and scale it back So our budget this year is 2.27 million And we had to cut back on some ministries And we are limited in some of the things that we'd like to do With hiring other staff Now again you might be someone that thinks Oh well the church just wants my money It's like well no Right? I mean, none of the money that you give is going to go into my pocket Right, Every staff member that works here They could make more money somewhere else They're not in it for the money And they're not going to get the money if you give it So what's your money going to do? It's going to do more ministry It's going to result in more people hearing the gospel It's going to result in more people being discipled and built up It's going to result in more people being shepherded Through the cares and concerns of life So give. If you love the missionaries that we support and you'd like to see us supporting more, then give more. Our missions budget this year is about $100,000. And that number to me, it just like jumps off the page. Like we could do so much more. I mean, we could give 10 times that amount. To his name, going to the nation's that people would understand his glory on the other side of the world. I'm praying that God will double that or triple that this year. That our missions giving would go up to, you know, by 100% or more. Like everything all together, the whole package of our expenses is about 3 million dollars and we give 100,000 to his to the name his name going to the ends of the earth. We can do better. I can do better. And just a reminder, God loves a cheerful giver. If you're sitting there thinking, I don't want to give a cent, then don't give a cent. God loves a cheerful giver. God wants Macedonians, right, that beg for the opportunity to give. And they give generously and sacrificially, and they see it as this is a gift that I get to give. I'm so thankful that God gave me money so that I could give it to others. That's what it is, right? We're not a corporation, We're not a business, we're a family. We're trying to advance his kingdom. I'm talking to you not as a CEO, I'm talking to you as a brother. Like, let's do this. There's so much more that we could do. So many more people could hear of Christ. So let's invest in those things. Now I know that it's hard, right? Believe me, I know that it's hard. We're a family of six, we're living in the Bay Area on one income one pastor's income right we know it's hard to give one time a few years back our previous church they were building a new building and they were asking us to pray about what we could give and so we started praying and we had just a small window of time a couple weeks to pray and ask god you know what would you have us give in that little window of two weeks, we received two checks from different family members that were the biggest checks they'd ever given us. We weren't expecting it, we weren't asking for it. They're not even, you know, they weren't doing it because you know we were having a building campaign and they weren't, they weren't doing it that for that reason. It was just, they just gave. I mean, between these two checks, it was almost like my year's salary at the time. And so we looked at this money And it was a Lord of the Rings moment, right? (laughs) Where Bilbo, he has the ring and he knows he's supposed to give it to Gandalf. And he has that thought, well, why shouldn't I keep this? And we thought, well, we don't need it, but we might later. But God just worked. He said, you know what? If you need it later, I'll give it to you later too. You can give it to him now. And we've never regretted it. And we've never been begging. And our thought was not, fine, we'll give it. Our thought was, how could we not? How could we not give it? It's not ours to begin with. And after all that he's done for us, how could we not gladly give this? I mean, you have a choice. You could live a life where it's your money And you're going to struggle every day to think through, how can I get more? How can I save as much for me? Or you can just be open-handed, knowing that it's all his, and give it to him as much as you can, and just be along for the ride. Like, he can do things that will amaze you and astound you. Right? I mean, the series is called It's a Matter of Trust. Trust that God can take care of you. I really wanted to preach on 2 Corinthians 9 as well because it talks about how God can make everything overflow to you just abundantly for every need that you'd have. If you give to him, he's just going to keep pouring it out. How could we not give back? How generous has God been to you? How rich has he made you? And So be a portrait of his grace a radical generosity, pouring it out, overflowing with rich generosity, just like God and Christ poured it out on you. Let's pray. Father, we are rich. Our sins are forgiven. Our eternal home is set Christ is there right now preparing a place for us that we'll enjoy for all eternity. We are rich. And it wasn't as a result of anything that we did. It's not through the things that we earned. We're rich because your son became poor. And he lived a life of persecution And oppression and betrayal and abandonment and died a death on a cross so that we through his poverty might become rich. How could we not be generous? With how generous you've been to us. Lord, work in the heart work in my heart. I want to give more work in the hearts of each member here of Valley Bible Church to where we'd be like Macedonians where it's like you don't even have to ask us. We're gonna beg you for the opportunity to give to those in need because we so love what you've done for us through your son and we so love that you're spreading his fame to the ends of the earth that we want nothing more than to give it all to you Lord, help us. Lord, I don't want this to be just something that we feel convicted about right now and then we just go back to living how we're living. Change us. Help us to go home. Help us to go home as as families and to pray and to ask you, how might we use what you've given us for your sake and the sake of your kingdom? How can we make sure that we're giving sacrificially and generously and enthusiastically and that we view it as a privilege. Help us that when more money comes our way that our first thoughts are not ourselves but they're the things of your kingdom. And Lord, if there's anyone here that hasn't given themselves first to you, we pray that they would do that today. That they would look on Christ who was rich and yet he used his riches to become poor so that you might become rich. Lord, Valley Bible Church is a generous church, but we could excel even more. Lord, don't be done with us. Keep using us. Use us in greater ways in the weeks and the months and the years ahead than you've ever used us before. And may your people be more generous than they've ever been. For your sake, we pray in Christ's name, amen.